As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Anyway, so, um, yes, it's called a basic overview of Thomistic metaphysics. Um, and like I said, this isn't going to be kind of a, a critique or anything. I'm not leveling any critique. I think there's plenty of content that we've got on the Discord for that kind of thing. This is really just going to be an exposition of the of the position. Uh, so I'm mainly basing this off of Ed Phaser. And Ed Phaser is pretty much a premier Thomist nowadays. Um, so I've got some recommended content here. Um, so his books, Classic Metaphysics, and his other book, Five Proofs for the Existence of God. It's kind of like um, a spin on... <clears throat> it's not actually Aquinas' Five Ways, which we will go through in this talk briefly, but it's kind of his own arguments, and he's kind of modified some classical arguments, including some a couple of Aquinas's. So it's kind of more, quote-unquote, neo-Thomistic, if you want to call it that. Then there's one that many by Father Norris Clark. This is really good. I know classical theist uses this. And then there's this YouTube channel called the Thomistic Institute, which gives some really nice kind of basic uh, explanations of things. So um, I'll try my best to explain things and I'll take questions at the end and I'll answer them if I can. So without further ado. Cool. So first of all, we need to talk about just, uh, well, what is metaphysics first of all? So a lot of people kind of loosely throw the term metaphysics around, but if we're going to go with the Aristotelian tradition, metaphysics is going to be more broadly defined as the study of being qua being. Now the term qua there, if you guys aren't familiar, it's just a it's just a connector, which means as such. So for example, if I talk about um, wine, if I say I'm going to do I'm going to study wine. I might be talking about studying a particular wine, like I might be talking about studying a Bordeaux wine or some sort of thing like that, or white wine. But if I were to say I'm studying wine qua wine, that really means I'm just studying what is the fundamental composition of what wine is and, uh, you know, what is it constituted of and what makes wine what it is. And in a sense here, we've got being qua being. So we're literally, uh, metaphysics is essentially the study of being as such or the study of um, existence, uh, these kinds of things. So it's one branch of philosophy. Um, another kind of more generic use of metaphysics would be to just talk about things that uh, trans uh, transcend kind of material um, limitations. Like you could say numbers are metaphysical or things like that, if you know what I mean. They are meta, they are above physics or what is physical, if that makes sense. So this is um, from Aquinas. Nihil est in intellectu quod non sit prius in sensu, which means nothing is in the intellect that was not first in the senses. So this is the kind of a fundamental part of, epi of Thomistic epistemics is that it's all about looking at the created world using your sensory experience, being able to look at things and say, ah, that is a, a book. And then I can look at this book and then I can abstract out certain qualities from this particular book, which are uh, universals. And I can do this using my rational intellect. But the key is that um, all these 
all these abstractions are preceded by my sensory experience, my observation of uh, the said book. So this is the basis for natural theology, and the and the good and a good definition, or well, an explanation of what natural theology is. Natural theology is essentially starting from reasoning about creation, looking out at the world, looking at uh, creation, making abstract, reasoned, rational conclusions to form arguments or come to certain conclusions about the existence of God, the nature of God, the existence of the soul that kind of thing that's what natural theology is so it's not a revelation thing it's not like you read revelation and you receive some truth in revelation it's reasoning from cre created instances of things this tree this um glass this you know whatever and then working your way up so i hope that's somewhat clear <clears throat> and a fundamental uh, starting point for us is going to be actually going back to the pre-socratics so there were these two philosophers and one is called Parmenides and the other one is called Heraclitus. I've got their two uh, statues here. And so what they're kind of, um, so this is before Aristotle and before, before Aristotle. Uh, Socrates. Tear the statues uh, down, bring them down. So um, basically what, what happens is that they have a big debate over whether change is real. And... Um, so Parmenid, so Heraclitus takes the view that change is constant. There's flux change. Everything is change. And so he's famous for saying stuff like, oh, you never step in the same river twice. So, you know, when I finish this sentence, I'm not the same person as I was when I started it, those kinds of things. So there's no, there's nothing permanent. There's nothing that doesn't change. Whereas Parmenides took the exact uh, opposite view. He thought that there was absolutely no change and that change uh, wasn't real. So literally change don't real. And his reasoning for this was, and I'm just going to quote from Phaser here. His reasoning for this is that uh, change and diversity are basically illusions. So there's no distinctions in things. Um, everything ultimately is just being at root. So this is what Phaser says, quote, for whatever exists is a being, and if something is not a being, then it is a non-being, and anything that's non-being is nothing. Now, a being could change only if caused to do so by something other than itself. Yet, as was just said, the only thing other than being is non-being, and non-being, since it is just nothing, cannot cause anything. Hence, change is impossible. So for Parmenides, change literally is just something coming from nothing which is illogical so the way heraclitus responded to this was to just be like okay but i just move my arm uh and parmenides would be like oh, okay haha very funny but that doesn't really deal with uh, the logic so what came about is over time when we get to aristotle we get this very and this is really fundamental to termism by the way and this is uh, orthodox by the way too is the concept of act and potency or actuality and potentiality so what you would say, or Aristotle would say, is that change is the actualization of a potentiality. So for example, we have this cup here of hot water. Uh, this cup of hot water is actually hot, but it's potentially cold. So there's kind of an aspect of, um, of kind of being going on in terms of potentiality. It's not just pure nothingness. It's like a real potentiality that's determined by what the thing is so in this case a cup of hot water but the only thing that can cause something to go from being potential to actual is something that is already actual in that respect so in the case of the hot water in order for that hot uh, hot water that's actually hot to become uh, that's that's potentially cold to become actually cold something that's already actually cold namely the colder surroundings needs to um, cause that to happen in the in the cup. So um, that's very uh, basic. Um, is this idea and actuality is a more fundamental and a more real kind of being than potentiality is. So this brings us on to the four causes. Um, I don't know how many of you guys know what the four causes are, but this is also again this is something that the church has inherited amongst the fathers. 
So I just want to talk about quickly, what does cause actually mean? Because usually when you think of a cause, if I say I caused this um, billiard ball to move, it usually means that I've just like pushed my finger into it to make it move. But what here cause um, can uh, mean is not only that, but it can also mean like an explanation for something. So if I look at a particular, uh, in this case, a table, I ask myself, well, why is that table the way it is? And I know it sounds kind of uh, abstract, but Aristotle said that there's four different causes or explanations for why that table is the way it is. So first of all, there's the efficient cause, which is the, you know, the what I described earlier, kind of like pushing a billiard ball with my finger. That is an, efficient, an instance of efficient causation. Um, it's something that is actually making something, the state of affairs, the way it is. So in the case of the table, uh, it would be the builders who uh, built the table, if that makes sense. Then there's the uh, material cause. So this uh, relates to the kind of underlying stuff that makes up the table. So that would be like the wood, the uh, metal, and the all that kind of stuff. But be a little bit careful because it's a bit more nuanced. It's not just a question of physical matter. It's uh, it's kind of more it's more holistic than that. So it's not one particular thing. It's just kind of whatever it is that is kind of uh, underlying in terms of matter or stuff that composes this uh, this table. So then we get the formal, and the formal cause is kind of like what we, like a kind nature or the structure of the table. So um, in this case, you know, having the metal and the wood arranged in this particular structure or shape would be the form of the table. And the the what matters here is this concept of how you could have different tables made with different matter, but they could all have the same form. Um, another good example would be, say, like a glass. Like let's say I have let's say I have a metal cup, and it's kind of shaped like a cup. Um, but then uh, you know. It's got the form of a cup. It's got, let's say it's made of metal or something. But then let's say I punch a hole in the bottom. For Aristotle, that would no longer be a cup because it wouldn't have the, it wouldn't have the, you know, the shape or the enclosed structure of a cup. That makes sense. I hope I'm making some sense here. And then there's the, the final cause. And this answers the kind of the question of uh, what the thing is for. What is the end of this thing? So the table, you know, would be for putting objects on or if it's a dining table, you know, having your dinner on and stuff like that. So the final cause concerns what the what the purpose or what the end of this particular thing is. So a cup would be, you know, for drinking or and there can be multiple final causes. I don't think there's a like a specific but there's definitely stuff that things are not for. Like a cup is not for beating someone up for example that's not why uh, that's not that's not the final cause of a cup if that makes sense so these are these are all kind of important so another uh, important thing is this concept of the distinction between essence uh, and existence so i'm just introducing this little latin word here quid which means what so quiddity just means whatness what makes a thing what it is in this case you know that would be uh, related to essence <clears throat> and then existence so so essence would answer the question of what something is and existence would answer the question of that something is so that something is is existence and what something is would be an essence so when we look out the world we see that um there is something common among everything even if there's differences so even though this cup is not like this book and this book isn't like me, uh, what unifies us is that, that that we all exist, right? Like we all, it is the case that we are, we exist. So um, let's think about uh, these uh, three examples here. So we've got a unicorn, we've got a pterodactyl, we've got a horse. So let's say I had someone that had, for some reason, never heard of any of these creatures before. And I told them, hey, um, and, well, and, and I explained to them what the essence of each of these things was. So I explained to them what a unicorn was. I said, basically, um, you know, it's a four-legged mammal. It has a horn. It has, uh, you know, uh, 
hair it's it's white and i just gave like imagine i just gave a full description of each of these of the essences of these creatures or what these creatures are and then i told him hey one of these things uh existed another one of them exists and another one just has never existed at all now he wouldn't be able to tell me um whether based on my explanation of what those things are the essences of those things whether or not they exist and that tells us there's a distinction because if he could if he could tell us the whatness if he could uh, come to that conclusion then there just wouldn't be a distinction between the existence and the essence of those things so um we can kind of uh look at uh, the concept of a bachelor so a bachelor is an unmarried man, and there is no real distinction between those things. They're just different ways of expressing the same thing. But there is a real distinction between essence and existence, because to know the essence of something isn't necessarily to know that it exists. Do you see? So I can know about a unicorn, or I can know about a pterodactyl. doesn't mean that it, ex that it actually exists. Um, and so then we have obviously the concept of contingency, which helps into this. So, you know, um, Kai could exist today and then uh, I could kill him today and then he wouldn't exist tomorrow. But uh, you could probably still know what Kai is tomorrow. So then there's um, this is an important thing as well is what's called hylomorphism. Um, and I think this will help tie into a few things in the discord. Sometimes me, father and Jay and that talk about. This comes from the Greek hyla, which means matter, which we talked about earlier. We talked about material cause and morph, which we also talked about. We talked about formal cause. So I'm going to add a layer onto the, the causes I explained earlier. So matter is to form like potentiality is to actuality. So if I have a random arrangement of metal and wood, um, that is a potential table. Right. Even if I just have a pile of it on the floor, it's a potential table, but it's just matter. So it has a potentiality to um, be actually a table. So then uh, what, what's important to look at here is the these uh, these shapes. So let's just take the triangle, for example. It's a pretty common one that used that's used in metaphysics. It's as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Triangle is uh, drawn with chalk, so the matter of the triangle, this particular triangle, would be the chalk, and then we have the form, which is uh, the triangularity or the triangle, the triangle essence, which is you know uh, you could define as uh, a shape with three sides and um, 180 ang uh, degree angles inside the uh, the corners. The <laughs> the angles of the corners add up to 180 degrees. And uh, yeah, I think this and so so hylomorphism is just so this would be an example of a hylomorphic object. It's an object that's composed of both matter and form, and that's what makes the substance or the thing. If I mean like or the the res, which I put in ray, which is just Latin for thing, or literally just a simple subject. So. This book is composed of paper and ink and glue. That would be the matter. And then you've got the, you know, the the book's form, which is the, you know, the certain arrangement or structure of the book. 
and that's a hylomorphic object. So pretty much everything in reality is a, is a, in creation anyway is a hylomorphic object. And this is something that you guys may have heard about is substance uh, and abs accidents. So I wanted to kind of layer on a kind of a more fundamental definition of the term substance. So substance have got two these two Latin words, sub meaning under and stantia meaning standing, so standing under. And um, a substance can be understood to mean something like a form or an essence or a nature if you if if you want which is kind of a more generic sense or understanding which would be kind of more like a second secondary kind of substance um so like dogness or catness or uh let's just say bookness in this case so we have many obviously many different kinds of books but they all instantiate or are instances of bookness so that's kind of the secondary sense, but um, kind of on a more deeper level, the more primary sense in this particular case I just want to introduce you to is uh, just the idea of it being this thing or this subject, literally just just the simple subject. So we have dog. We just have this dog. It's not it's, it's not it's not a universal. We're talking about just the simple subject here, which we which we predicate and say things about. So the dogness, which is the universal, we had a bit of a conversation on this on Discord, the dogness, which is the universal essence, is in the dog, which is the substance. So there's different nuances and uses of these terms, which you have to be aware of when you're reading um, metaphysics or especially the fathers. Usually footnotes can help you out with that when you're reading the fathers, but yeah, that's I, that makes some sense. But then we have this idea of accidents, now, accidents don't exist on their own, unlike substances. So substances just, and what I mean by that is that, like, for example, um, if I have a red ball, the redness only exists in the ball, like, concretely. Like, you, you don't have just some kind of red floating around, if you know what I mean. Like, you can't just, you can't just see redness floating around. So accidents only exist in substances but substances can exist on their own like you could just have a dog or a ball or something like that so accidents are those things which are not they don't define the essence of a thing and they exist in the substance so examples would be examples john damascene because i've got a dog here is the color of the dog's fur for example um Color, very simple one. Um, ethnicity. I've invoked this recently on uh, Snacks. Um, thread that I translated on Twitter. So anyway, I, I hope that makes sense. So then I want to talk about the five ways. <clears throat> so the first way is called the argument from motion. Now, I just want to stop right here. Um, so this isn't a kind of Motion here doesn't just mean movement, which would kind of more in metaphysics or at least Aristotelian be called locomotion, like local motion, like moving something. But motion really just means change in this case. And this is key, by the way. This idea of motion meaning change is uh, is often, uh, you know, people a lot of the time don't really uh, know that or understand that, but it's important to know that. So here's the arguments. This is a deductive argument. Our senses prove that some things are in motion. So see, again, we start with our senses. Our senses prove that some things are in motion. Things move when potential motion becomes actual motion. So in other words, change happens when something goes from potentiality to actuality, as I've explained in, um, I explained act potency earlier. Only an actual motion can convert a potential motion into an actual motion. So as I explained before with the cup example, only something that's actually cold can make something that's potentially cold go from potentially cold to actually cold. So I hope I've got everyone on board. Nothing can be at once in both actuality and potentiality in the same respect. So this is just a reification of the uh, law of uh, non-contradiction. So something can't both be 
hot and cold in the same sense at the same time. Like you might have some examples of like you could have like some toaster that's got like, you know, a cold exterior plastic case, but then, you know, it's hot on the inside. But that's, that wouldn't be saying something is both hot and cold in the exact same respect at the exact same time, if you know what I mean. So anyway, five, therefore nothing can move itself. Therefore, each thing in motion is moved by something else. The sequence of motion cannot extend ad infinitum. So you can't have an infinite regress of actualizations of potentialities going on forever. So conclusion, therefore, it is necessary to arrive at a first mover put in motion by no other. And this everyone understands to be God, i.e. something that has no potentiality that is purely actual. And that's where the concept of God being pure act comes from, okay? So this is the second way. Um, this is from efficient cause. So if we remember our four causes, this should be fairly easy. We perceive a series of efficient causes of things in the world. Again, we start with our senses. Nothing exists prior to itself. Therefore, nothing in the world of things we perceive is the efficient cause of itself. If a previous efficient cause does not exist, neither does the thing that results. Therefore, if the first thing in a series does not exist, nothing in the series exists. If the series of efficient causes extends ad infinitum into the past, for then there would be no things existing now. That is plainly false. So things exist. Therefore, efficient causes do not extend ad infinitum into the past. And the kind of analogy that I've heard for this is like, imagine if you tried to power your laptop and you plug your laptop into a cable extension and then you plug that cable extension into another cable extension and you just go on and on and on like that forever without ever plugging your cable into a power source that's kind of like uh, an analogy to what's going on here so this is kind of more like a classic cosmological argument and the conclusion is therefore it's necessary to admit a first efficient cause to which everyone gives the name god so this is you know first cause basic first cause argument um, nothing really shouldn't be anything too new for anyone who's looking into theism. So this is the argument from possibility and necessity or the argument from like uh, contingency. A, conting a contingent thing is something that could have been another way. Um, so there's certain things that are, you know, I mean, basically everything in creation could have been some other way. Like, um I don't know, I could have not been born, for example. <clears throat> so one, we find in nature things that are possible to be and not to be, that come into being and go out of being, i.e. contingent beings. Assume that every being, so this is a reductio, by the way. So the premise is just, let's assume that every being is a contingent being, okay? For each contingent being, there is a time it does not exist. Therefore, it is impossible for these always to exist. Therefore, there could have been a time when no things existed. Therefore, at that time, there would have been nothing to bring the currently existing contingent beings into existence. Therefore, nothing would be in existence now. So it's kind of like modal logic where you have kind of like possible world where there's nothing. And anyway, we have reached an absurd result from assuming that every being is a contingent being. Therefore, not every being is a contingent being, which means that there must be at least one necessary being and that would be you know god obviously then these last two arguments are kind of a bit a bit more difficult and i've kind of i do recommend you go check out the thermistic institute for questions on these because i find these ones i mean they're not i don't find them as amazingly deductive as the other three but so this is the argument from gradation of being so there's gradation to be found in things some are better or worse than others. So the kind of stuff that he's talking about isn't like like color, for example. Like, oh, hey, this, this, this red is more red than this red over here because this red is you know closer to blue or something like that. No, because those things are limited and material and couldn't really in principle be something that could be infinite in some sense. So what he's kind of got more in mind of is uh, transcendental things like goodness, truth, beauty, being, or existence, those kinds of things. So there's, 
uh, gradient or gradation of these transcendental things like beauty or love or um, love is a bit controversial but beauty or existence or things like that oneness i don't know any of these transcendental um things that uh, aquinas used um predications of degree require reference to the uttermost case so a, a thing is said to be hotter according as it most nearly resembles that which is hottest so you wouldn't be able to judge that something is more or less um existent or having being unless you had some kind of uttermost referent like some kind of infinite referent and then the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus so the maximum being the maximum most infinite being is what makes it the case that you can have gradations uh, of being or, or whatever other transcendental category you want to talk about. Conclusion, therefore, there must also be something which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection, and this we call God. So there must be some infinite maximal thing that causes all of these uh, these gradations, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, I mean, anyway, the fifth way is the argument from design. Mm -hmm. This is kind of more like the argument from final cause. Um, if you remember the the final cause that we talked about in uh, one of the earliest. We see that natural bodies work towards some goal and do not do so uh, by chance. So again, we're looking at things and coming to this conclusion. Most natural things lack knowledge. So things can't, like for example, a I mean, a, a tree can't direct itself. It doesn't really have any knowledge or intelligibility to determine its kind of purpose or, or orientation or what it's for. It just does it. Uh, then he says, but as an arrow reaches its target because it is directed by an archer, what lacks intelligence achieves goals by being directed by something intelligent. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. So there has to be something intelligent and he uses the um analogy of an archer there has to be something intelligent that kind of sets the final causes or the directions of these creatures or things which have final causes and ends because they can't direct themselves obviously uh and this is kind of like meta meta so yeah we we i mean in a sense it's not so much like you could think, oh, a human can direct the purpose of something like uh, like a knife for cutting like uh, food or something, or you know, cucumbers or something. But that's not really what's talking about. It's it's more. It's not so much the use. It's more about actually the final cause or the direction being it actually placed in that thing, in a in from above, as it were. If that makes sense, I hope it makes sense. It's kind of like not you, not someone using the software on a PC, but that which actually uploads the software onto the PC. If I, I hope that helps somewhat. So then we come across something which is very, very important as well. I've made everything in here very important, by the way. And this is also used in orthodoxy. Um, so this is called, uh, well, not. Not in the same way Thomas use it, but these concepts are used in orthodoxy. So you have analogia entis. This is the analogy of being. So this is just about how we talk about things, how we use words to say things about stuff. And this is, um, for example, so first we have the univocal use of terms. So that's when you use a word univocally which means I'm using that word in the exact same sense in both cases. And I've given the example, Rover is a dog and Fido is a dog. In both instances, the word dog means exactly the same thing. There's no distinction between the, the two uses. Um, or I could say that stop sign is red and that tomato is red. I would mean the exact same thing in both cases. Then there's the equivocal use of terms, which is the exact opposite. It's when you use the same term, but they have completely different meanings in both cases. Uh, and this is where the fallacy of equivocation comes from. So I say, I have a human right, 
and we should always do what is right. The term right there means completely different things in both cases. Another example could be, um, I have a baseball bat and I saw a bat flying outside yesterday. So these are two completely different uses of the term bat in both cases. So then there's the middle ground, and this is the important one to remember, analogical use of terms, analogy. And this is really important for theology, by the way. It's when I use a term and there's a similarity in the way I use the terms, but they're not totally not the same and they're not totally identical use in use either. So the example I've given is Sam is a good man and the steak is good. Now, what I mean when I use the term cases isn't exactly the same, but there's some overlap. There's some kind of similarity between the two. Um, uh, let me think if I can think of another example. Um, I, I mean, goodness is a really common one to use. But, you know, then when we apply this to God, obviously, we have like, oh, I'm a creator. I created this. Um, say essay or something like that and then when you say god's a creator there's some there's some overlap but they are not meaning the exact same thing in both cases because the way god creates isn't the same way as i create so then there's um just kind of some little subsets of analogical usage so there's uh what you could say is proper proportionality and i've used the example of life in plants and life in humans so plants just so in both cases you have life because there's um like a vivifying principle that animates the the thing and you know a tree is alive and a human is alive and then there's an example of improper proportionality where if i say say lionness in a lion and then i ha I, and then i say george is a lion for example i don't mean the same thing but i'm still making an analogy so the the there's a different sense of proportionality because, you know, it kind of doesn't make sense to say a lion is courageous, but there's still something about the lion that warrants me to call George courageous as an analogy to the lion. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that covers that. So then we get on to how how do we get to how do we get in this scheme how do we get to the divine attributes because we prove the existence of god with our five ways so how do we uh know what you know what god's like what are the attributes like and all that now starting with unity and simplicity well we have this conclusion that god is actus purus so we've started from creatures we worked our way up to god being pure act from argument from motion so then we can say well what can we say about god if we know he's pure act well uh, something that's pure act there would be no real distinction between the essence and the existence of that thing so this is um characteristically thomas is to say that god is ipsum esse subsistens which means that god just is the subsistent act of existence itself there is no distinction in God between his essence and his existence. If I call to mind God's essence, then I also call to mind his existence, much in the same way that if I called to mind... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The concept of a bachelor in my head, I would also call to mind the concept of an unmarried man. So there's only a virtual distinction between these things. There isn't a real distinction between the two. Um, and uh, the upshot of this is that you can't really have more than one being that's actu- that's uh, that's essence is identical to its existence. Because if you had two, like let's say I had A and B and one had its existence identical uh, to its essence and the same thing with B, well, there wouldn't really be a principle to distinguish the two. So there's no real distinction between God's essence and his existence. Um, and this is another key thing is that all of God's like real attributes, like um, which we'll talk about in a second, are, you know, you'll see that they're kind of, they're basically just um, restatements or conclusions based on this idea of God being so all powerful um and a really easy way to start with this would be to just look at the etymology so omni means all and potency means power or potentiality as we've explained in the uh, earlier um so everything that exists depends on god per the argument from motion we looked at so you know god is the kind of the foundation actuality that actualizes all potentials right that's where the all power comes from all potentials so god by his very nature because he's pure act can actualize all uh, potentials and things do, don't have an independent capacity for acting has to go back down this chain and because god is pure act he has to act in the fullest possible way. He has no potentiality, so he is not deficient in any way whatsoever. Um, so yeah, he he can. Uh, that's just what it means. He's all he's all powerful. He can actualize all all logically possible potencies. So God can't actualize things which are in principle incoherent. So for example, God couldn't actualize, couldn't make it the case that a triangle have four sides, for example. Because it would be incoherent, because what makes a triangle what it is, is that it has three sides. That's just the definition of a triangle. And that's why, uh, you know, um, God can't make a rock so heavy that he can't lift and things like that, is that it's just it's just incoherent as a concept on the face of it. So the next attribute is being all-knowing. Omni meaning all. Siere meaning to know. Um, and then we need to think a little bit about this other concept, which is going to be new to this talk as well, is the idea of uh, proportionate causality. And this basically states that when you have a cause and an effect, anything that's in the effect must be in the cause in some way, because otherwise you would have something coming from nothing. And anyone who's familiar with critiques of evolution will um, have some semblance of this, will kind of get what I'm talking about. So the the thing in the effect must somehow be in the cause, either formally, uh, virtually, or eminently are the three categories that Faser uses in his book. So I'm going to give an example of, say, I wanted to cause you to have $20, like, if I wanted to cause you to have $20, there's a few ways I could do this. So an example of it being um, formally would be if I actually had $20 in my hands and then I give it to you. So the $20 was in the cause and now it's in the effect, but it was in the cause formally or kind of actually, like I actually had the $20 and gave it to you. Um, and then... You could say, in a virtual sense, I could have 
money in my bank account so i don't actually have 20 dollars on me now but i could like transfer to you 20 dollars. so that would be in a sense a virtual sense so i own the 20 dollars. it's just i just don't physically have it but i have it in my bank account and then eminently is kind of like the really full way is if i just had the power to say print 20 dollars from you know cause make the government print 20 dollars for me um and then give it to you so those are just I, I hope that helps somewhat um it's hard to kind of condense down the whole section on attributes but i'm doing my best here um so i put here god cannot merely instantiate things like redness and still be all knowing and what i mean by that is that god has to have the idea or the as as because he is the cause he has to have the idea or the concept of redness in his mind um for him to sort of do that so he must actually know what redness is so that he can cause it in creation and i've written thoughts corresponding to the state of affairs are among these ideas uh, so a thing is the case because God causes it to be that way. Um, and I know that sounds a bit tautological, but if we think about it kind of like uh, an author, an author knows what's in his book because he wrote it. <clears throat> so it's not like how I come to know things where, you know, I learn some fact about, say, Islam or something. I didn't cause that fact to be the way it is. But if I did, then I would be supremely in a position to know about that thing. And so the author analogy helps here, because if I write a whole book about, you know, like a fictional story about like a murder mystery, um, I know that book in a, in a far more intimate sense than someone who's just going to pick it up because I wrote it. I caused it to be the way it is. So again, we've looked at um, cause and effect in creation and reasoned up to um, the omniscience attribute. So then there's um, will, and I've written in the nature of it, in the nature of things, uh, they tend towards certain activities. So for example, this tree it will tend towards drawing up water and nutrients from the ground and photosynthesizing and things like that um, but the tree does this kind of unconsciously if um, so it doesn't really think about doing it it just sort of does it I've written animals tend towards activities consciously and this is what is called a sensory appetite so if you know what an appetite is you know it's like oh, I'm, I'm hungry or so it's something that you you tend towards but animals like and we're classed as animals humans are classed as animals in in uh, Aristotelian uh, definition which the fathers also use uh, humans are rational or mortal animals we tend towards those things consciously so we have what's called uh, a, a will um, but what makes us special is that we're rational so we can apprehend and conceptualize the things that we are going to do so by analogy based on the fact that we observe this phenomenon in creation uh, we and remember this is analogia entis um god must also have an intellect and he must tend towards something as well uh, in this case it would be the realization of his own nature uh, which kind of sounds a bit weird when you think about it but um yeah i mean he 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 tends towards himself if i can put it that way um he doesn't have his end in anything he doesn't depend on anything um and then we also observe that god causes some things to exist but not other things so god has uh freedom of will because if he was if he wasn't free then either nothing would exist or everything would exist or so you know so the idea goes <clears throat> then we come on to goodness and love so just a little diatribe what exactly is goodness um when we look at let's say i drew let, let's say i asked a five-year-old to draw a triangle 
and he drew me a triangle on a piece of paper with a pencil and it was um you know it's not going to be a very good triangle but then let's say i you know printed out a geometric you know pc um software and i printed out a, a triangle i'd made on some like 2d art thing well that would be a much better triangle than the triangle this five-year-old drew but why is it that that triangle that I drew on a computer is better than the triangle that the five-year-old drew? Well, the explanation would be that that triangle more closely resembles the form of a triangle or the formal cause or you know, what it is to be a triangle. So it's more perfect. It's more good than the other triangle. And the, the uh, goodness is determined by... Um, a thing's nature. So the more closely something acts in accordance with its own nature or whatness, the better that thing will be. So another example that Phaser gives is a squirrel, for example. Let's say you had a squirrel that you trained to like eat toothpaste and just lay it flat on the ground in the middle of the sun. And then you compare that to a squirrel that, you know, seeks its own good. You know, it goes and it consumes nuts and stuff and climbs trees. Well, that squirrel would be a, a better squirrel, a better example of a squirrel, of a specimen of a squirrel than the previous squirrel I'd mentioned, which was eating toothpaste and waiting for predators to kill it. So the concept of goodness is intrinsically tied to the idea of a final cause or purpose that things have. Um, and goodness involves the actualizing of the potentials proper to a nature. So it involves being actual in some way. Um, for a squirrel to seek its own good, it needs to actually go and consume nuts and actually go and reproduce and actually climb trees and frolic and whatever. And as we talked about, actuality is a kind of being. Um, and uh, because God is purely actual, he is, you know, the fullness of being itself, then he is also perfectly good and perfectly, um, well, the, the love aspect is more about the fact that God also seeks or wills the good of others. So that's kind of a definition of love is, well, you know, today we have all these weird definitions of love, like it's just, oh, let me put pee-pee and poo-poo, and no, that's not the case. Um, what makes what love is is willing the good of another that's what love is and so that because god wills for all these uh potentialities in things to be actualized he desires those things not in the sense that he like constantly causes them to be the case but he desires those things then he is in that sense also perfectly loving and this is a little side note is that uh, and this is the case, of course, in orthodoxy too, is that um, badness or evil is a privation. So it's a failure of a thing to realize its being. So it's a, a tendency towards non-being or a thing not being itself. And this comes back to the idea of perfection. Like, remember if, you know, if I, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's pretty clear. I'll talk more about that in natural law. So if you remember how we define goodness, um formal and final causation are key so goodness what's good for a thing is going to be conditioned by what a thing is its essence its form and also um you know whether or not it's fulfilling its final cause or its end or what it's for so natural law um pertains to um moral agents so if an if a yeah if a lion kills an antelope the lion is obviously not seeking the good of the antelope but it's seeking its own good the the lion is seeking its own good um but you know lions and antelopes aren't morally praiseworthy agents they don't have rational souls so they can't reflect on in, intellectualize think or have any kind of conception of um you know reasoning basically um ref or reflection on things so morality mainly pertains to obviously uh you know rational agents like humans and angels um 
So I've written humans can know what is good because of will and intellect. So yes, because humans have a will and they have an intellect, they have a rational soul, they can know what's right and wrong. So the concern with whether or not an act is right or wrong is whether or not what you are doing is fulfilling the um, end or the um, final cause of something. So this is why we would say homosexual acts are morally wrong, because in that case, they are using sexual organs for they're frustrating the ends of the sexual organs, right? So if you, you know, put a sexual organ in, in the in the excretory tract, that isn't uh that is frustrating the end or the natural end of the uh genitals, if you would if you don't mind me talking about that. So <clears throat> likewise, um doing something that would be good, so uh, healing someone's eye, like let's say I'm a doctor and I, someone has an eye problem and I heal their eye. I've, you know, um, helped that person's. It sounds kind of grammatical. But I've helped that person's eye seek its own good, if you know what I mean. I've brought it towards its end, it, uh, namely seeing. And this is the final slide I have. Um, the beatific vision. So the basic reasoning for this is that, well, man is not purely uh, corporeal. So we have a soul, which is immaterial. So the, so the finality of man or what man is ultimately for, what the final cause of man is, isn't purely limited to material sort of enjoyments like enjoying some cake or, um, you know, um, watching a movie or these kinds of potentially, I mean, you can, you know, debate about Hollywood or whatever, but just think about kind of small natural goods, um, material goods that we uh, experience every day, you know, giving alms or, you know, th these kinds of things. Um, man isn't limited to that because we're not purely uh, corporeal. So the rational soul will extend beyond death because it's immortal. And because, as we talked about, the degree to which something is good is based on the degree to which something is more or less actual. So to seek after the good is to seek after being or actuality. Now, no finite good can satiate man's um, appetite for um, goodness. So heaven would be an infinite satisfaction. And again, because God is the, uh, you know, he's a pure act. He's the fullness of being and goodness itself. Man, because he seeks ultimate and infinite goodness, would naturally seek after uh, God as his final end. And that's why the beatific vision the intellect or the rational soul is fully satisfied by contemplating the divine essence, which is alone the only thing which is unlimited and infinite goodness. Um, so yeah, I hope I think that's the yes, that's the end of my talk. I hope that's been somewhat helpful. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.